podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. But John, thank you very much for alerting me to how a lovely player Tim Castagna is. Are you recording? Uh, yes, I am. I'm still trying to work out what Paddy meant by that. But anyway. Uh, no, I've got no idea. He's the right back that Fulham signed from Leicester. Hello everyone, this is Colin Schindler, along with John Holmes and Patrick Barclay, welcoming you all back to another edition of Football Ruin My Life, which we are dedicating to trying to make John feel better about coming from the Midlands. I mean that kindly because although Paddy and I, and I dare say quite a large proportion of our listeners, are very pleased for him that his club, Leicester City, to which he is passionately devoted, won the league in 2016 and the FA Cup for the first time ever in 2021. The fact is that the trophy cabinet at Filbert Street didn't need a lock on the door. Spreading the witty sarcasm much wider, much the same could be said of most of the clubs in the Midlands. Of course, those of us of a certain age would have grown up with the knowledge that, under Stan Cullis, Wolves were one of the two teams to dominate the 1950s. And we can certainly applaud Villa winning the league in 81 and the European Cup the following year. And of course, Forrest's spectacular triumphs under Clough and Taylor, who had previously won Derby County's first league championship. But by and large, however, if you divide up England like the old sports parade programme into the South, the North and the Midlands, the Midlands have a poor record compared to the North. Now, that's not gloating. That's just a statement of incontrovertible fact. When the Football League began in 1888, it had 12 clubs. Half of them came from Lancashire. They were Accrington, Blackburn, Bolton, Burnley, Everton and Preston. Now, does that suggest that the Midlands were unduly handicapped from the start? No, not at all, because the other six founder members were West Brom, Aston Villa, Notts County, Wolves, Stoke and Derby. Paddy will no doubt tell us that it was the Scottish professionals who so dominated the English game at the end of the 19th century, and it's true. But looking at the Football League's chequered history over 135 years of its existence, you can't but be aware that the Midlands hasn't really pulled its weight. Now, John, can you provide a calm, logical reason for this apparent anomaly? I think the answer is probably money and television. One of the bits that was always a puzzle to people was, where did the Midlands begin and where did they finish? Because a lot of people in the south of England would say... Anywhere north of Luton would be Midlands or even the north. And there always was a problem with television as to whether Stoke was in the Midlands or Stoke was in the northwestern region. So it's a rather ill-defined region. But having said that, in my opinion, Stoke and Port Vale and Crewe probably as counting as Midlands and Sheffield as counting as north. And if we go south, I think we count Northampton but not Luton Town. And if we go west, I'm not sure where Shrewsbury comes into, but they're sort of indeterminate. They're in the Welsh marches. And Norwich are certainly in East Anglia, or they were the old Anglia TV region, of course, and get lumped with Ipswich. So they're the sort of broad parameters of where we're talking about. Well, I think, actually, we've not done that badly. Yes, there have been places. Stoke have never won anything. Coventry have won the Cup only once. But we've had a smattering of sides that have done pretty well. Wolves have been one of the dominant sides of my youth. I can remember bemoaning Wolves appeared to win everything. Aston Villa 
won the cup for the record number of times when they won it in 1957. Then Liverpool's hegemony over titles was broken by Nottingham Forest. Derby, for a small town, Derby won the league. In recent years, in the Premier League, Leicester have won the cup and the league. I think they're the only side outside you would call the big six who've done both of those. So I'm not sure there's been this trophy absence. None of these towns are particularly big, you see. Leicester, Nottingham and Coventry are about the same size as cities. They're nowhere near as big as Manchester and they're not as big as Liverpool. The North East is a bit different because it's hard to define how big Newcastle is because the conurbation is, of course, enormous. And, of course, all these places are dwarfed by London. So I think on population terms, they've probably punched above their weight, to be absolutely honest. Well, Paddy, let me ask you this question, because going beyond the trophy, John's made a reasonable case. If you thought about the North East, it was always, in our youth, regarded as the hotbed of football. You know, there was a passion about the football in the North East as there is certainly in Lancashire. But when I look at the Midlands, and I'm sorry, but I don't see the extent of the passion amongst the population that you would say was there in Newcastle or Sunderland from towns of a similar size. That's probably true. And actually, one thing we have omitted to say is that the first dynastic control of English football was that of Aston Villa, who won the title five times in seven years, leading up to 1900. That was one of the most dominant clubs there's ever been in English football. Yes, led by a Scot. You want to point that out, you can. With a chairman, Scottish chairman and Scottish star player. But that, I'm afraid, is history. Since then, it is true that there hasn't been a Midlands club, with the possible exception of Wolves, who were eeksy-peeksy really with Manchester United, despite their three titles in, in, in the early 50s, I suppose. There hasn't really been a Midlands team that has stayed the course. I mean, Aston Villa won the league and then the European Cup at a time where pretty well every English entrant did. Nottingham Forest won it twice. But by and large, it hasn't punched the weight that history would suggest it should have done. In other words, Aston Villa made a rattling good start that hasn't been perhaps followed through. I did a rough calculation on our fact packet. And even including Ipswich as a Midland club, it only comes out to about 30. In nobody's calculations, does Ipswich come through as a Midland club? No, but I'm saying that even if you did that to try and bump up the figures, you'd get 30 out of 150. Now, is 20% success rate in the English Championship punching its way? We've shared it about more in the Midlands. Derby, Leicester and Forest have all won the First Division come Premier League title. If you look at the Cup, that's actually the place where the Midlands has punched below their weight since Mm -hmm. Villa became the record winners when they beat Manchester United in 57. There have been very few winners from the Midlands. Coventry being one, Leicester being another. Forest won the Cup once in 1959, didn't they? Yeah, and Wolves won it the following year. Yes, So, yes, you've had a few, but let us, for a moment, concentrate specifically on the city of Birmingham. That is, you know, a major conurbation. It does have two teams, and Villa have made their mark on the game. Birmingham City, without being disrespectful, I mean, the Gilmerick 1956 
team that played City in the final. Yeah. Briefly under Trevor Francis, but I can't think of a Birmingham City side that tore up the Football League ever. Yeah, Jasper Carrot had it when he said, you know, big Birmingham City fan, he said, who was the best Blues player since the war? And the answer, of course, was Louis Armstrong. <laughs> the other Carrot one was uh, the Birmingham City supporters philosophy. Some you lose, some you draw. <laughs> but it should have done better than that, shouldn't it, really? The second city of the country, it claims, the workshop of the world in the 90s. I mean, it had industrial backing and should have produced some sort of team that represented the power that it had at its disposal in the land. But it never did. Mm. They've been ill-served by their chairman in the Midlands. It had the Coombs at Birmingham. Yeah. And it had, of course, the wonderful Deadly Doug. Deadly Doug, yeah. Who, by popular acclaim, named a stand after himself. Yes. And for those Villa fans who wonder why Gary Lineker never ever signed for Aston Villa, the answer was that Doug made a great attempt to sign him by ringing Willie Thorne's snooker hall. <laughs> he was sure he would find him there. The other story I have about Doug, who sacked managers with a amazing regularity. He sacked a manager at one point, and I knew at that point that Tony Woodcock, who qualified in Germany to get his coach's badge, was interested in coming back to England. Mm. Now, I actually knew that Tony Woodcock would not be a big enough name for Doug, but I agreed to ring Doug. So I had this call, and I said, I've got this candidate for your manager's job, Doug. Yes, yes, he said, yes, yes. Who is it? He knew who I acted for, so he was getting a bit excited. But he's abroad at the moment. Yes, 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 yes. But he is quite interested in getting back into English football. Yes, yes. Very exciting. I said, it's Tony Woodcock. And he went, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought it might be Gary Lineker. <laughs> No, I'm afraid, Doug, he hates Villa. He never scored goals there. And there is no chance of him ever becoming a manager. I remember being, along with a few others, we were invited into Doug's office because he was, was it England had applied for some tournament and there was an idea that Doug was the chairman of to build the National Stadium at Coventry yes. rather than Wembley. Yes. And it was a bloody good idea. Yes. If they had built Wembley at Coventry, the carbon footprint of football would be so much reduced. To be fair, he was on the side of the angels on that one, in my opinion. But it was just going in his office was so telling because I don't know whether there was wallpaper or emulsion, but you couldn't see it. The entire wall was covered with framed pictures. They were all pictures of Doug with famous people. There was Doug with Nelson Mandela. There was Doug with at least one Pope. There was Doug with a member of the royal family or two separately. And there was Doug with this bloody great fish. I think it was a pike, but he just caught it. <laughs> Honestly, there was just Doug with the only thing that the photographs had in common was that Doug was the other person in them. <laughs> <laughs> Can I go back to Paddy's point that I was going to raise anyway, but he brought it up before I could introduce it subtly, which is this whole Birmingham-Wembley thing, because I don't know if I was alone as a football supporter, but I thought, if you live in Manchester, you live in London, you live yeah. in Wales, yeah. it's the most logical place to put the damn thing. Yeah, Why absolutely. are we going back to Wembley? But this is common with all sports. If you look at rugby... They preferred to build their ground in Twickenham 
which is one of the most inaccessible places in the entire country. It certainly is. Cricket, Lords. The only sport that I actually wanted to centre in the Midlands was rowing, yeah. which built a big centre at home, Pier Point, yeah. which is just outside Nottingham. But I'm afraid this is part of the overall socio-economic scene. Oh, well, that's interesting, John, because why is the Midlands being marginalised in this way, which is what it is? I mean, you're making a perfectly valid point, and I feel slightly self-conscious about this now, but there is a sense in which the North is real football, that London dominates the country. Of the three, the Midlands is the poor relation. They've never lacked ambition, you know. At one point in the early 1950s, there was a plan to make Port Vale Stadium the Wembley of the North. Yes. And one of my favourite stories was when I was interviewing young men who came in all wanting to be football agents, they all came with these wonderful CVs that they got. Their first statement was, I know everything about football. And my first question was, who is the manager of Port Vale? (laughs) At which point they say, I don't know that one. My second supplementary was, where is Port Vale? Yeah. And then I got an even more glamour look that normally went, up north? (laughs) They obviously haven't done any Arnold Bennett. Well, quiz question. You have to name the six towns of Stoke-on-Trent. And why on earth did Arnold Bennett call them the five towns? Colin, you're an educated man. Do you know the answer to that? I don't know the answer, John. I don't. No. Paddy? Hanley, Burslem, uh, and the others. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tunstall, Stoke. Stoke. Fenton and Longton. Denry Machin. Arnold Bennett. The matador of the five towns. Yes. His wife says to him, what's football got to do with anything? And he replies, you silly whatever it is, sausage, football has got to do with everything. And Kalia was the name of the footballer, came in, revived the town. He was a sort of wonderful figure, a sort of Roy of the Rovers figure who came in. And whatever the name of the town was, I can't remember because Bennett, like a lot of authors, never used the exact name of the town, which is why he yes. altered it five to six. But they then won the next match about 10-0, having been beaten previously. Mm. It was an equivalent signing to Stanley Matthews, actually, funnily enough. Stoke were in the doldrums, and then Tony Waddington conceived this idea of signing Stanley Matthews. And if you remember, Mm. massive Stoke revival. There have been other sort of similar revivals. Jimmy Hill did an extraordinary job at Coventry, didn't he? They were languishing in the... Third Division, for those who talk in modern language, Division One, and revived Coventry completely, who went from there up through the two divisions and were not relegated for a very, very long time. Yeah, many, many years. And the Tony Waddington revival, which I think began with the likes of Dennis Violet from Manchester United's Busby Babes, but it carried... Peter Dobing. Peter Dobing and loads of others. George Easton. Hudson. I mean, one of the most entertaining teams in the country. It was a place, certainly when I was a very, very young reporter, it was the place where all the old lads liked to go. You not only saw a wonderful football match with great atmosphere at Stokes Victoria Ground, but you were well looked after by Tony Waddington afterwards, who was a great showman rather like his team. He believed in entertaining people. But to go back to the Vale Park, the Wembley of the North, I've just looked it up. And towards the end of the Second World War, the idea of the Wembley of the North, the plans included an 80,000 capacity and lifetime seats were sold for £100. 
which was the price of admission for 200 matches. And six years later, in 1950, the ground did open, boasting a capacity of 40,000. And that was Vale Park, which now has a capacity of 15,000. But there was ambition there. There was at one point an idea to build a ground to house Forest Leicester and Derby near the East Midlands Airport, which at one point they tried to rename Nottingham Airport because no one knew where actually the East Midlands were defined at. Defining the Midlands is difficult, as I've said. You know, Paddy made the mistake early on of trying to include Ipswich in that. I think you go for the old ATV area. The first job I had was attached to ATV News, the six Mm. o'clock programme on what became Central Television, ATV at the time. And the one story nobody wanted to do was the one that was actually quite prominent at the time, which was the story of the rebellious Clay Cross councillors. Yes. Remember that? They objected yes. to whatever the government was doing and they had a sort of little local rebellion. We were based in Birmingham at the ATV Centre and the chances of getting up there and getting a film report, getting it developed and getting it back on air at six o'clock in Birmingham was almost impossible. Today, you can get from the desert on the other side of the world live into the programme. But in 1974, you couldn't get to Clay Cross and back again in Derbyshire yeah. by the time the six o'clock news started. That was the problem. What we felt when I was working at ATV was we really were only interested in Villa and Wolves and the Black Country and maybe as far as Nottingham and Leicester. But that was it. So the, the North Midlands and the South Midlands kind of suffered by comparison with the it Central. It also Midlands. covered ATV. It was one of those where both could be got. It depended whereabouts your aerial was pointing. You could either get Yorkshire TV in Skegness or... Midlands TV in Skegness. Now, you might, you might say nobody wanted to go to Skegness, but <laughs> a lot of people did. The Leicester Mercury used to have a Skegness edition for a fortnight in July during what they called the Leicester Holiday Fortnight. And it mm. sold pretty well, but there you are. That's another aside yeah. about the Midlands being an undefinable area. Yeah, just a footnote here. Yes, I know where Ipswich is, and it's not in the Midlands. I know that. But I'm just saying, one way of looking at it is the central belt. If you divide the country and you produce a central belt, unless I've forgotten something, no, apart from Ipswich, no team from the east of the country or the west of the country has ever won the league. Liverpool are from the west of the country. Well, yeah, but I would include them in the northern. If you're talking about belts, you've got the north of England, You've got Northwest and Yorkshire. You might consider that a belt. And then the central belt. Listen, I'm just trying to argue my way out of you saying that I think Ipswich is in <laughs> the bloody Midlands, OK? Well, we could go further on this and saying, actually, if you're talking about the area that's really deprived is the West, because Plymouth, right in the south of Devon, had never been in the first division. Mm-hmm. They may make a run in this season. Yep. They've threatened on occasions. You know, Bristol's record is very, very poor. Mm-hmm. Yeovil were in the league for a bit and dropped out. Mm-hmm. Exeter have always been confined to the lower divisions, mm-hmm. as were Torquay mm-hmm. when they were in. We've never had a Premier League side from Cornwall. No. And Plymouth, you know... Plymouth is a big city. Well, the thing about them, I remember they had a great run under Paul Sturrock about 20, 25 years ago, and there was talk of you know, that they might just make it into the top division. Well, they've got one big advantage and one big disadvantage, and that is 
that they win an, an inordinate number of their home games but lose an inordinate number of their away games. Because if you travel by coach... You're knackered. You're knackered. I mean, the number of times Plymouth have won at Hartlepool, I'd love to see the stats. <laughs> Probably half the players have fallen asleep on the park and vice versa. Here's a reasonable quiz question for you, Paddy, and this is for you alone. Which World Cup runner-up manager ended up managing Skegness? World Cup runner-up manager ended up managing Skegness. Colin knows, you see. That could be Ariko Saki. <laughs> no, it's in fact George Rayner. That's right. Oh, very good. That's excellent. Who managed Sweden. He would managed Sweden to defeat yes. five goals to two by... Pele and Brazil yeah. in Stockholm in 1958. Yeah. Correct. Ended up as Skegness manager, but yeah. there we are. Yeah. Went out on the high. That... Just an aside, that was not a question I asked after Port Vale to aspiring football agents. George Rayner, he wasn't from the Midlands, was he? I don't know, I don't know where George Rayner okay, was. Okay, is Lincoln in the Midlands? I would say Lincoln was actually in East Anglia. Mm. Or possibly the Midlands. Yeah, the eastern it's section. on the edge. Yeah, along with Cambridge. Cambridge, I would say, with Peterborough. Peterborough is another. I'm not sure you count as being East Midlands or whether you count yeah. it as being East Anglia. And our producer, Paul Kobrak, who's, you know, in his glass box at the moment, I can see him now with all these assistants. Paul, can you nod if I've got it right that no way is Watford in the Midlands? Yes, he's nodding. We just wouldn't, we wouldn't have loot neither, you know. I think this is motorway service stations defined. <laughs> so Newport Pagnell is where the Midlands begins. Well, I used to live there. And Keel services is where the Midlands ends. Yes. yes. Paddy Barclay once lived on the M1. Yes. Or in sight of the M1. I went there. I even invited John Holmes in for a cup of tea, but I remember Keel... For lunch, even... Paddy. Was it lunch? Yes, it was. Well, it just whistled by because I was having fun, but... Keel reminds me, one of the advantages of being a journalist was that you met people whose books had come out and Stanley Matthews had brought out a book. It was ghosted by a very, very prestigious journalist called David Miller, who you'll all know. And the publishing company said the author's available for an interview. So I rang up and said, is that David Miller or Stanley Matthews? And she said, Stanley Matthews. So I said, in that case, can I have one, please? So... I went up and he did all of his interviews towards the end of his life anyway on Keel services on the M6. He was the most wonderful man. Spoke very interestingly on various subjects, including Paul Gascoigne and David Beckham and so on. At the end of it, he said, you've got a Scottish accent. Which part of Scotland do you come from? I said, Dundee. And he said, oh, Jackie Mudie's from Dundee. I said, well, I know. Jackie Mudie was basically his ammunition provider and more at Blackpool, a wonderful, wonderful player, one of the best players ever to come out of Dundee. I said, why? He said, well, do you often come up this way? I said, yeah, yeah, I cover matches at Anfield, Old Trafford and all that. And he said, well, give me a ring next time you come up and I'll bring Jackie to the service station and we'll all have a cup of coffee and you can meet him. Anyway, I can still feel a shiver up my spine as I retell this. Anyway, you can guess what happened. I kept saying, yeah, I'll do it next week. I'll do it next week. And then I heard in the news that Jackie Moody had died. And, you know, if I die and somebody says, have you got any regrets? I'll certainly say, yeah, I should have taken up Stan Matthews on that offer. It would have been wonderful. Anyway, I digress. 
Back to the Midlands. Can I talk about commentators for a moment? Because, again, I still think it's the most helpful definition because I understand why John's having problems with where the legal boundaries are. But the ITV commentators all had, in the 70s and 80s, they had their own manner, didn't they? Gerald Sinstad was on his way to Glyndebourne, popped into Old Trafford and to Main Road on the way, would do it for Granada, and there would be Keith Macklin for Yorkshire Television, and there would be Brian Moore, obviously, in the south, and Jerry Harrison, which defines Ipswich and Norwich as not being the Midlands, but being East Anglia. But the Midlands was the bailiwick of Hugh Johns. Oh, yes. I have memories of Hugh Johns, and I'm wondering whether the two of you have memories of Hugh Johns. Hugh Johns was the commentator for ITV on the 1966 World Cup final. Correct. The man who did not say they think it's all over. Mm. I have heard recordings of what he did say, but I confess it was... <laughs> unmemorable. <laughs> Hugh Johns was a very nice man. He worked from ATV. ATV in charge of their sport. They had Billy Wright, mm. very popular local boy. And of course, the unsurpassable Gary Newbon started oh. at ATV Sport and is still, as I speak, going and commentating on pigeon racing. But with great style. And great chutzpah. Great what? Chutzpah. Chutzpah, Colin. <laughs> you need the... Not <laughs> yeah, oh, Gary Newborn, fantastic man, and as you rightly say, irrepressible. But Hugh Johns, I remember him having a very public school voice. Yes. He had a very nice voice. He was Welsh. Yes. Well, that's probably why his voice was so mellifluous mm -hmm. and resonant. Yeah. I raise it only because, and this is, you know, it is disrespectful. I never felt he really knew the game. I mean, this is just what came over in his commentaries. I didn't get the sense in the way that perhaps David Coleman and certainly Barry Davis and John Motson did, his voice didn't tell me. Maybe it's the public school voice that stopped me appreciating. I had the same feeling about Hugh, and it probably is disrespectful because he probably knew the game inside out. It may be inverted snobbery that caused yes, us right. to do that. But no, I, I didn't think he knew the game like Martin Tyler or... Uh, yes, Brian Moore, David Coleman, Gerald Sinstead. I wasn't such a big Coleman fan, I must confess. I didn't think he had a good voice. And much as I love Motti, I thought he had a dreadful voice. Motti had passion, but we're going here into the commentators episode, coming up shortly on Football Ruin My Life. No, I was merely using Hugh Johns as an expression of defining the Midlands. I mean, I, because they were there for quite a long time, and unlike, you know, the BBC Match of the Day, because it's a different beast altogether. If you were living anywhere in England and you watched the Sunday afternoon ITV version of what had happened the previous day, mm. you got to know and feel an affinity for one commentator. It sort of helped define the yeah. region. And that's obviously now gone. It went the moment that ITV killed Granada and London Weekend and everybody else. Yeah. If we talk about broadcasting, how many of the BBC correspondents actually came or originated from Leicester or worked in Leicester. One of the reasons for that was that Radio Leicester was one of the earliest BBC local radio stations. Ah. Sam Leach had worked on the Leicester Mercury. Brian Butler had worked on the Leicester Mercury. Ah. And a lot of the radio commentators on all sorts of sports, Ian Carter, people like that, they've all come from or gone through Either the Leicester Mercury, which was a big local newspaper, one of the largest, actually. Yes. All Radio Leicester, which was a very early BBC station. They punched above their weight 
in that regard, the Midlands. And in producing writers as well for the national, particularly for the quality press. I mean, Martin Johnson, who died a few years ago, who was one of the funniest and most entertaining. Yeah, certainly was a, an incredible breeding ground. Can you think of great Midlands football people who went on to become managers of Midlands football clubs or became spokesmen for the Midlands area? I mean, you get it with Liverpool, you get it with Manchester, and you get it with There's London. There's someone called Gary Lineker. Of course. Oh, I've forgotten him. Yes. <laughs> and Billy Wright, who was high up in television, as I've said. No, there'd been a lot of football men from the Midlands. Stan Cullis was from the Midlands. Stan Cullis, yes. But the thing is, I mean, we're thinking on our feet here, and I predict disastrous consequences, but name an Aston Villa legend who went on to manage Aston Villa, and I'd exclude Deadly Doug in this. Brian Little. Brian Little was certainly a Villa legend and was a decent manager for Villa. Is that as close as we can get? I mean, Brian Little, total respect. But he's not Stan Cullis. He's not Matt no, no, Busby. He's not Bill Shankly. No. Could so, be argued that Martin O'Neill, who was at Forest, had his biggest success with Leicester. Yeah. He also managed Villa, didn't he, as well? Yeah. Quite successfully. And Forest, actually, for a very short period of time. Yes. Let me pick up on West Bromwich Albion for a minute. Because oh, there was yes. a time in the late 70s when they were a very good side. I mean, they won the Cup in 68. And they were forever in the FA Cup semi-finals, weren't they? They got that far and then they didn't seem to go on. But I remember their right half who played as an auxiliary striker, Tony Brown. Sort of player that every club would want, but he was incredibly faithful to West Brom and never moved. Bomber Brown. Bomber yeah. Brown was actually a Mancunian, I think. A wonderful player. And of course, he'd be worth billions now because he was a midfield player who never neglected his duties. But he scored like a striker. Yeah. I bet he got 15 league goals a season. Yeah. And, of course, he was in that wonderful team. I remember them winning 5-3 at Manchester United once. That wonderful team of Ron Atkinson's, about 1979-81, something like that. That was the wonderful team where three black players came through at once, Brendan Batson, Laurie Cunningham and... Cyril Regis. Cyril Regis. Of course, Cyril Regis. Arguably the best of the lot. A magnificent team. Ali Robertson and... Well, Batson himself was a lovely fullback. Neat and tidy. Letton Cantello was a good midfield player. Another Mancunian superb. John Wilde, centre-back. Who made the bloodied headband fashionable. Yes. And, of course, a marvellous marauding left-back called Derek Statham. I've missed out Ali Brown, the other Brown who was a good goal scorer. Came from Leicester originally. And that's my point. That was a very good team. And it had very good players, but it didn't achieve or stay together nope. for nope. as long as it wanted. Why? And is that part of the rootlessness of Midlands clubs in that way? I don't mean it disrespectfully, John, but there is a sense in which it's transient, the Midlands success. The grounds were not as big and the crowds were never as big in size. That is one of the reasons. You know, the North East, you could talk about Big crowds, big grounds. Mm. London, big crowds, big grounds. The Midlands, biggest ground was Aston Villa, wasn't it? Yeah. Had lots of semi-finals at Villa Park. That was why the whole Wembley thing came up, because I remember going to the 69 FA Cup final when City beat Everton, the 81 FA Cup final when City beat Ipswich, both at Villa Park. They were easy to get to. And I just thought it's a better semi-final ground than the days when we didn't have Wembley. 
better than any other ground I've been to. They had him at White Hart Lane, they had him at Main Road, they had Hillsborough a lot, obviously, as we know. Mm. But Villa Park was the best. It was the definitive semi-final ground. You're quite right. When you think of FA Cup semi-finals, you just see Villa Park in front of you. Mm. It also had, you know, you remember the Wembley, the grandiloquence of the Twin Towers, whereas Villa had arguably a more impressive facade until they changed it. Mm. So you felt the sense of occasion at Villa Park. So Villa was a big club. West Brom were a very good club, you know, at the time we were talking about. But the Liverpool hegemony was unchallenged by these clubs. And it's never... Well, Villa got to the final of the FA Cup in, what, 2000, was it? Yeah. The last one played at Wembley, I think. Terrible, terrible game. I think they lost 1-0 to Chelsea. Yes. And Dennis Wise went up to get the cup with his son in tow. I seem to remember that. Yes, very poor. Very poor. But you're looking, and I'm wanting Midlanders listening to this podcast to be proud of their area and the way that I know I, as a Lancastrian, I'm very proud of where I come from. And John is of Leicester, obviously. I wish there was more for Midlanders to get a hold of in terms of their history that they can say, this was our time. Very few clubs from the Midlands areas have had a time in the way that Forest certainly had a time. But I can't think of anybody else who did. Also, if you look at the films of the 1950s, whereas London was always named and a destination, when you had films set in other parts of the country, notably, you know, Joe Lampton, Room at the Top, they never named the towns where they were. Arnold Bennett didn't actually admit to coming from the Potteries. It was all different names. Well, Saturday night and Sunday morning was certainly Nottingham, wasn't it? It was certainly Nottingham, but it wasn't named as being Nottingham, was it? Neither was Billy Lyre. We never actually knew whether it was Leeds or Bradford. No. Alan Sillitor was a regional writer. He was a Nottingham writer. Mm. He wrote about Nottingham, and he named it in the novels. But in films, they never did, because they were mostly made in the south of England. And even... When they showed The Loneliness of a Long Distance Runner, the period where they went away for the weekend, which was meant to be Skegness, they filmed on Camber Sands. They didn't actually go to Skegness because people from London probably have no idea where Skegness is or how ghastly it is. There's a very, very good film written by Brian Forbes called The Angry Silence, made around this time, about 1960, which is about labour relations. Now, I don't yes. know if it's because the Richard Attenborough character for breaking the strike was sent to Coventry, but in my imagination, it took place in Coventry. It certainly took place in a major industrial plant in a major industrial town in the Midlands. But I think it was Coventry, but it may never have been named. It Didn't name it, did it? The Midlands has always struggled. One of the things that I, I may have mentioned this before, two of the great humorists of the 20th century, both came from Leicester, from the same estate, Sue Townsend and Joe Orton both came from the Saffron Lane estate area of Leicester. But we've never had that shouted about. They're rarely associated with the town where they came from. Mm. They had to go south. Mm. Now, you mentioned Jasper Carrot before. And Jasper Carrot, apart from being a Birmingham City fanatic, you know, has the voice and has that Midlands humour. Yeah, he does. Whereas there are lots and lots of northern Liverpudlian comedians, if you like. Yeah. I can't think of many. The way Jasper Carrot signifies Midlands and comedy, I can't think of anybody else who does. Can you? No. I remember when Adrian Mole was first shown on television, I nearly threw a brick through my television screen when they had Beryl Reed, who is pure Birmingham, 
playing the grandmother. Mm. The dividing point, for those who don't know, between the East and the West Midlands was the A5, still is the A5, mm. whereas Hinckley is in the East Midlands. It's one side of the A5. Nuneaton is in the West Midlands. Mm. It's just the other side, separated by very, very few miles. Mm. But can you imagine being a comedian and say, hello, I'm a Man United fan. You'd get cabbages and pies thrown at you. Whereas Carrot can parade Birmingham City because he knows people will warm to him. Yes, that's There'll true. be sympathy towards him. But interesting, actually, while I was, just to prove I can multitask, I was looking up the average attendance at Birmingham City's ground. Sorry, the record attendance. Do you know what the biggest crowd I've ever seen at Birmingham City's ground was? 60,000. 67,000 just before the war. So that's not a club that has struggled against potential. You know? Who were they playing? Everton. It was in 1939. Leicester's record was 47,000, and that was against Spurs yeah. in a cup. That kind of indicates that Birmingham City, for much of its existence, could have been an Aston Villa, but perennially hasn't. And I've never been able to work out why. But, Colin, do you think the Midlands needs to do better or is that unrealistic? Well, you know, I keep thinking that it's become almost the black sheep of the England national family in the sense that when there were three bids starting before 2012, in fact, a long time before, maybe in the 1990s, there were Birmingham and Manchester and London all applied for the Olympic Games. And Birmingham got knocked out at a very early stage so they didn't have the organisation. Manchester had some chat, and I've forgotten his name now, but he was a very good organiser. And he ran the Manchester Olympic bid. And he and Bobby Charlton went round to the Olympic committees. And they didn't bribe anybody, so they never got the games. Mm. But they made a really good show of it. Birmingham's attempt fizzled out before it began. And, and that's, that's kind of what I'm getting out of the Midlands. A sense of disappointment mm-hmm. that is sad. And England will be stronger for a stronger Midlands representation. I'd certainly like Birmingham City to have a moment in the sun, you know, like Leicester. I'd like Port Vale to have a moment in the sun. It would be very interesting because if Port Vale had a moment in the sun, we would get, as I did when Leicester were doing well, I got calls from all over the world and they had no idea where Leicester was. Yeah, yeah. What's Port Vale's Wembley of the North got in common with HS2? It was half Half complete. (laughs) (laughs) And on that bombshell, I'm leaving this topic with a sense of sadness on behalf of Midlanders. I mean, you know, I don't want to feel remotely as if I were... Patronising them in any way. ...thinking of the Midlanders in any lesser term. But I think for this week, anyway, John should be wrapping up the show because John is our Midlander... You wrap up the show and tell us your feelings, not just about Leicester, but where you come from. Where I come from, there's actually an Indian restaurant that I went to in Leicester on Saturday night. There's a repro of the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper cover, and it says 99 reasons underneath to love Leicester. And it has pictures of the Attenborough brothers. It has pictures of Daniel Lambert. It has pictures of Tony Sibson. It has pictures of Sue Townsend, Joe Orton. Gary Lineker, <laughs> obviously, and the many, many people who've come from Leicester. Thomas Cook, C.P. Snow. We are the only town to, I think, in one year in the 90s, the rugby club won the championship, yeah. the rugby championship. The county cricket club won the county championship. And Leicester under Martin O'Neill 
won the Carabao Cup. If ever a town punched above its weight in terms of size and everything else, it's Leicester. I can't say the same for Birmingham. Birmingham have no rugby club of note now, sadly. Nottingham have no rugby club. Quite a successful cricket club. So there are elements that are there, but to pull it all together is difficult. It's not just the Midlands. I think the hotbeds of football are really the old industrial areas and London because of the money. I think that's where it comes down to. Mm -hmm. The Midlands were really more of a middle-class type of mentality than perhaps the northwest, the northeast. London, London's got the money. Everything goes down to London. Everything was run from London. Most sports are run from London. I once questioned why on earth the British Horse Racing Authority had an office in High Hoban when there isn't a race course anywhere near London. (laughs) The foreign cricket sides want to come to Lords. That's one of the problems. They don't want to come to Trent Bridge or Edgbaston. Well, that's a very good wrapping up situation, but we need to tell everybody who we are, where we're going to, and how to get in touch with us. Right. My name is John Holmes. I have been talking too much to Ali Barkley <laughs> and Colin Schindler. We are Football Room My Life at, I think, gmail.com, aren't we, yeah. Colin? Correct. And if you have any thoughts about the nonsense we talk each week, please get in touch with us. You can be as frank and honest as you like about it and if there are any topics that you would like to hear discussed then please do so if you'd like to praise us and say what a wonderful broadcast this is please tell all your friends so from me john holmes and from paddy and from colin and from our wonderful producer who's grinning in the background at me paul Kobrak, it's good afternoon from me and them Bloody hell, I thought it shouldn't look as good till I heard you, John. Ah, uh, but it's not just a one-off. You have to do it every week, every week. When he's been doing it for as long as you have, he can start doing <laughs> Looking around my office here, that was so exciting that one of the dogs has ripped up an envelope. That was the envelope you were saving for Lineker's next BBC contract, wasn't it? <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network.